This is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for week ending Friday, 10th of July, 2020. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear our chat with debut novelist Jessie Two about her book, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. Also, it was a pleasure to have with us Stuart Harrison, host of Restoration Australia and co-presenter of Triple R's long-running show, The Architects. He's delivering the Heritage Address for Open House Melbourne this year, which has gone and got closed, but is continuing nonetheless. And Hayley Inch uh, for Screen Review was all very favourably passionate about um, Babs reconsidering the films of Barbara Streisand. Uh, also, it was my birthday on Tuesday, and um, Sarah wrote me an acrostic poem, and also I talked about the best birthday present that I've ever received. Uh, we got to chat to Dean Gibson for about his show, My Family Matters, which is screening on NITV, uh, and also Shorty filled in for a couple of days while Sarah was away, um, and we tested her on her Masters of Teaching. Um, and also Steve Ellen, um, a.k.a. Doolittle, popped in to talk about uh, mental health advice for our second round of Stage 3 restrictions. Triple R. Jessie Two is an award-winning poet, short story writer, trained classical violinist, teacher and journalist whose work has appeared in publications including The Guardian, LA Review of Books and Mianjin. Her first book of poems, You Should Have Told Me We Have Nothing Left, was released in 2018 and Jessie travelled to New York City on an Australia Council for the Arts grant to complete her debut novel, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, out now through Alan and Unwin. And to tell us about it, the author joins us on the line now. Jessie, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi guys, how are you? Yeah, good, all things considered. Um, (laughs) Loneliness is a pretty hot issue in 2020. Can you speak to how it's explored in your book? I've always been interested in loneliness. I think not for any, like, like I grew up in a big family. I had three siblings. Um, They were very supportive. My family, uh, you know, from the outside, the optics looked very, you know, normal, so to speak. But um, I think what loneliness always meant for me was a desire or an excess of wanting. And I think for me in this book, I wanted to explore that excess of wanting from a female perspective, from an Asian female perspective, because in our culture, I know my conservative family, my parents are deeply conservative. Um, Wanting too much was always kind of considered dangerous, especially for a young girl. And so I really wanted to challenge those issues of like the, the sense of like wanting and the excess of wanting and what loneliness meant for a young person in today's society, you know, with, I guess, with social media expansion, expansion, sort of like increasing that need for us to always be seen. And I think mostly I wanted to combat that shame of admitting loneliness because a lot of us feel lonely, but um, few of us are reluctant to, I mean, few of us are willing to admit that because there's so much shame around that, you know? Mm. There's also sort of the the book uh, centres around maybe the worst case scenario for a performer, um, (laughs) a sort of public meltdown. Can you, is is that something that has ever happened to you or that you've, you know, is it, is it something that can happen to a writer even? (laughs) I'm I'm not sure about a public meltdown for a writer because, you know, I guess for a writer we have um, the scaffolding of, you know, months and months of drafts and we, 
put ourselves on the page. But I guess a writer can technically melt, you know, have a meltdown, say, mm. like on the radio or on stage. Um, not <laughs> that I've never ever experienced that. But um, for a public performer, like for myself, I do remember this horrifying experience I had at university where I, like being myself, um, someone who's always chewing more than off than she can chew, um, I performed, I selected a piece to perform that was horrifyingly way more harder than I was actually able to you know perform and then I really like screwed it up and I think that has always kind of stayed with me and that shame has always stayed with me so perhaps I put that into the novel somehow too <laughs> it is it is liberating to fail uh <laughs> is it what about um the idea it's the, the book's also a bit of a love letter to New York City and you've traveled so much um is it, can you sort of speak to the idea of being an artist and getting out and what does New York City speak to you in any way and what, what can be replicated from the vibe there? Obviously not now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Our feelings, I feel like everyone's um, sort of um, psychic relation to the city of New York is changing so much in the last couple of months for, you know, mm. obvious reasons. But um, New York has always been, at least in the Western world, this kind of, um, epicenter of creative sort of an orgy of creativity, you know, and like I think about all the artists and musicians and writers who have really made a mark on sort of like created their own sense of selves um, in that city because that city is ostensibly and essentially, um, you know, a, a city full of migrants. And so, and a city full of migrants are you know, a city where there are a limitless amount of identities and people from all across the world trying to find themselves outside of their birth country. And I find that perhaps that space of regenerating your own sense of self as an adult, you know, a lot of people move there after college to try and find themselves as adults. Um, that I think encourages a space where people are always open to new ideas. The when you talk about loneliness being a dangerous thing, I feel like the book also kind of touches on this idea of ambition and expectation as being quite dangerous. How do you think ambition can, I guess, lean into into loneliness? Like can ambition lead to being a more lonely person or into loneliness in your life? Oh, great question. Absolutely. I absolutely think that is the case because when you're lonely – I think it means that you want something, right? And ambitious people want something. And I feel like, at least in my case, I've always felt a sort of deep sense of loneliness in that I've wanted so much. And at least in Sydney, I felt growing up that my want has always been sort of unsavory. So like, even even just like, I feel like the threshold for, an you know, the so-called ambitious woman um, in Australia is... Maybe it's the tall poppy syndrome or whatever, but um, whenever I've told people about what I wanted in my life, they kind of just look, give me this particular look where they think, like, I feel like an alien. Like, I feel like there's something wrong with me just because I want something, you know, ab above and beyond, you know, marriage, children, a house. Um, and that I think that causes a lot of alienation for a lot of um, artistic people who want to explore other trajectories of life outside of the conservative marriage, house, mortgage, you know. Mm -hmm. mm. But there's also, uh, you know, I think affection is a, is a big sort of theme in the novel and maybe even between mother and daughter there's a scene where the photographer 
you know, asks the mother to sort of get closer. And I'm wondering, can, can you can you sort of expound on the idea of differences in physical affirmation? Yeah. I think what I wanted to do there was sort of examine and interrogate the ways in which I've always felt like my migrant upbringing, which was, like I said, conservative. Um, it was hard for me and my siblings to ever feel loved because when we came to Australia, we were young children under the age of 10. Um, my elder sister was 12, but my other two siblings, we were all under the age of 10. And our parents were raised in a culture that was um, very strict and, you you know, Asian culture. You don't, you don't sort of um, express your love in the ways that in which I saw my white Australian friends being you know, being nurtured the way their parents nurtured them. And so it was always hard for us to feel like we were being accepted by our parents. Like I think acceptance and the feeling of being accepted and loved, you know, it's a fine line between the two, but it's very similar, obviously. And like we were never like my, my, I remember like even now my mother would kind of like, if I wanted to give her a hug, you know, these days she's okay with it. But as a child, um, my parents are very, very like anti-physical. And so, um, and they're also, they're also not very verbal people. So they, we never grew up saying I love you or anything like that. And so I think what that happens when you're a child of migrants, you have parents who have grown up in a very different society where the language of love is very different to the language of love what, of what we have here in Australia. And those two things can be lost in translation, you know. So children of migrants suffer, I think, from feeling loved. And I think I wanted to explore that in this novel. Mm. Well, congratulations on the novel. I'm sorry that the regular book launch sort of vibe is probably taken away from you or is it? Um, no, I actually um, I have a lot of friends overseas. So I guess in a way this is a blessing because they get to join online as well. Yeah. So, Yeah. Well, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. It's out now through Alan and Unwin. We've been speaking with uh, author Jesse too. Well, thanks very much, Jesse. Thanks for having me, guys. Triple R. Stuart Harrison is an architect, lecturer and host of Restoration Australia on ABC TV who has authored three books on housing and believes in a strong link between history and contemporary practice. This year, Stuart delivers the Heritage Address as part of the Open House Melbourne program. And to tell us about it, the former co-presenter of Triple R's long-running show, The Architects, joins us on the line now. Stuart, welcome back to the Triple R Airwaves. Oh, thank you, guys. Great to be back on breakfast. It really is. The... the um, Oh, it is for us. The, can you tell us about Open House Melbourne? It must be your Christmas. Oh, it was, I mean, Open House Melbourne probably started about over 10 years ago and it was such a great idea um, and followed a same model, um, I think, out of Europe. And, yeah, it really was a great way of bringing the public in and completely aligned with what we tried to do with our little radio show on Triple R for 10 years, which is, you know, try and bring the public in uh, to buildings and architecture. And Open House Melbourne does it literally, obviously not without its challenges this year, but, um, you know, a great program and a great initiative that happens all around the world these days. And the the address, is that is that an, quite an honour for you? 
Yeah, so the annual heritage address is an honour. Um, I'm just assuming they couldn't get anybody else to do it. So, um, <laughs> oh, uh, because you look through the sort of previous presenters, uh, Kirsten Thompson last year, who's probably the best actress in Melbourne, um, Tim Ross Rosso the year before, who's become a great design advocate, and then going back, you've got people like Peter, Peter Madison host Grand Designs Australia. So it's a great company and um, I will do my best not to embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know uh, what you want to tackle? I do, I do, because I've, uh, I've been writing it uh, frantically last, uh, last week. So what do you want to talk about this idea of heritage as a kind of way of actually talking about design? Um, one of the things we found on the, on the TV show Restoration Australia is that a lot of the projects involve new work. You know, there's still a lot of design decisions to go on. There's not a lot of pure restoration happens in the world of restoration um, or Restoration Australia at least. So it's actually a good opportunity to talk about good design. And then, of course, the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you appropriately work when you're dealing with um, buildings um, that are existing? So there's a bit of talking about that. There's also a bit of talking a bit about um, probably more topical, the sort of inherent conservatism of conservation often as well. So be careful what we are restoring um, and who we are restoring when we when we do restoration work. And what are the other ways that we might restore buildings? What are the other reasons that we might restore things other than just kind of nostalgia? Mm. Is is there a building in uh, Melbourne that you think is underrated or that you you get a little bit excited to enter into? Well, there's, there's, uh, not at the moment because there's none you can go into. But, I mean, the National Gallery of Victoria is traditionally my favourite building, the one on St Kilda Road, which may have, may have even partially reopened and then I don't – but um, that's my building that's, um, you know, gets my heart going quite well. And it was, of course, restored itself a few years ago um, and sort of quite controversially. But that's the building that – kind of excites me. It's a profoundly Melbourne building um, with all its blue stone and that big wall on the, and the water wall, of course. So that's the one that is very close to my heart. I don't know if I, I don't know if it's underrated these days. I think it certainly was at one point in time, but I think a lot of Melbournians have very fond childhood memories of it. So that's a mm. great thing. And memory is such an important idea with, with buildings and places and landscapes. How do you get people to celebrate architecture and buildings if they can't, if they can't go into them this year or even possibly leave their house? Well, that is a great question. So the program this year is going totally digital, um, which is not obvious in some ways. So the program runs across the entire month of July, um, special events each week, um, such as the Heritage Address that goes live next Wednesday, uh, 5.30. And then that's all leading up to the weekend of July 25th, 26th, which is traditionally when, you know, all the doors would be slung open. And that will then be a full weekend of talks, live stream Q&As, online events, and over 100 buildings to explore, basically, from your computer. Um, and I guess one of the benefits of the, you know, one of the upsides to this whole craziness is there's some buildings that we're getting into that we couldn't do before. I mean, access into things is actually pretty hard. So, you know, like most people, Open House has been looking for the opportunities that this um, crisis creates. So there will be... Um, big VR, the big virtual reality tours, as well as getting into buildings that we haven't got into before. So that's pretty exciting. The full list comes online on the 20th, uh, sorry, on the 16th of July, which is next Thursday, the day after the Heritage Address. Okay. Um, given how close, up close, you've seen so much, so many restorations, is there, are there any tales of absolute commitment, like, you know, people get very passionate about renovations, obviously. But 
And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, there was one chap on your show who uh, went to Italy to source from an Italian quarry the marble he wanted. Is that is that typical in your world? Yes, and didn't we feel sorry for him? Um, <laughs> <laughs> just three blokes sitting around a meeting table going, oh, I think we should go to Italy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there are some tales of commitment like that. And, you know, the way the TV show is is produced, which is largely out of my hands, is around those personal stories of kind of endeavour, desperation, you know, redemption, all these kind of tropes. So, and in fact, in season three, so season two, which I hosted last year, aired last year, season three, which I'm also, I'm also doing before hanging up the, whatever you hang up when you're host of a TV show, season three that's airing this year, that has... Uh, a couple of stories that take that to another level, actually, um, including episodes that we started filming um, almost four years ago, that um, sort of three years ago, three and a half years ago, that there's been a lot of personal, you know, endeavour and um, that side of the equation really comes to the fore. And it is very, you know, so it's very inspiring in some ways to see people's commitment, but they're also often just completely mad. Like it's, you know, it's like why would you do this to yourself? But, you know, people do and it's great to see, but often they do it on their own, uh, particularly where they don't have, you know, architects helping them and those sort of things, and it can be a real a real um, epic journey for them. Mm. Um how do you think that if if at all the pandemic has affected your industry, are people getting more obsessed with their their homes and architecture and their place where they are? Have you seen an uptick in interest or well, I think that's a great that's actually a great point. There has been a um, increase in I think awareness of place, right? I mean, I think all of us who've been through this experience, um, and let's be honest, the experience to a large extent until very recently has not been too horrific. You know, we've all re-encountered, re-engaged with our, with our place, you know, with all the parks and pathways have been bustling and full. And that's been one of the kind of positives, like our immediate surrounds were sort of heightened to the sense of it. And I guess that extends to the house. I mean, a lot of people are trying to think about how they're going to improve their, you know, immediate surrounds, their dwellings. Um, and the builders I speak to are all super busy um, with that sort of stuff. So... I think a lot of people are using this as an opportunity to reevaluate, but we'll see what happens in the sort of, you know, as we come into the sort of second stage of this, whether that continues. I mean, I think there's a lot of people worried in my industry that, which is, you know, construction broadly, that things will get quiet um, and people will just not spend any money. So uh, a lot of architects are pretty worried about that and a lot of builders. Have yeah. you done any renos at your place? Uh, not really, no. We, it's all sort of, you know, and everything that you do think about now does sort of get put on hold. So, um, no, it's all sort of tabled for later. And my clients are continuing with things, but domestic clients, they're continuing to do bits of work, particularly design and planning work because you can, but whether people will pull a, you know, pull back from actually committing and building is another is another question. I mean, government's building, that's the that's the sort of main upside, and, they'll do, and they will build more. So that will be the thing that tries to prop up the industry when it gets tough. 
Well, as Stuart says, the main open house Melbourne this year is virtual. It's online Saturday 25th and Sunday 26th of July, but there are other events taking place and Stuart's address will be on Wednesday 15th of July uh, from 5.30 to 7pm. Um, do you reckon you're in the throes of writing it now? Do you reckon you'll inspire yourself? Or... <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm now newly inspired. I will now finish. finish <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, it, it'll be quite weird doing a talk in this way as well. So we'll see, we'll see how that. But that is that is the nature of the time that we're in. If I could also just mention, openhousemelbourne.org is the website. Yep. People want to find out more. Well, there's also a great thing called the Merge series, which is a collaboration between the M Pavilion and Melbourne Music Week. So a lot of emerging um, performers and musicians participating in that program. So that sounds particularly exciting. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Stuart's address is free to watch. No bookings required. Go to openhousemelbourne.org for further info. Stuart Harrison, architect, thanks so much for chatting with us again. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Just a reminder to everyone out there that it is my birthday today, 41, having a great time. Um <laughs> Have already uh, received uh, a really a couple of really great gifts. Um, that was the gift of poetry. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel wrote me a limerick, and Sarah wrote me a acrostic. Acrostic, yeah. Sarah, I think it's probably worth reading yours out again. I'd say, and then I'll talk about um, the best. One of my favourite presents that I've ever received in my life. You Have you still got it? Yeah. Do you, you sure I you think want it, to read it out again? Like it, yeah, I think it bears. Re- it's worth mm. a repeat. Okay, like thanks. I'd like to hear it again. Yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners that weren't listening at six fifteen would love to hear it. Gee, so an acrostic for those that are playing at home is where I give a word for every letter of Jez's name. So Geraldine, mm. no hickey. G is for Genevieve, the name by which all our listeners knew you for the first year that you were on air. Yeah. E is for Eucharist. It represents a Catholic guilt you carry on your shoulders every day. That's one of my favourites. R is for rage, a feeling, an emotion you show rarely, only when people call up and can't say their name clearly on the phone. Yeah. A is for Agapanthers. I think that speaks for itself. We've been listening to us this year, Geraldine and the Adventure of Agapanthers, which you dug out. What, what did you say? A is Agapanthers. Congratulations on them being gone. Is yeah. that what you. Oh, congratulations yeah. on them being gone, yeah. yeah. L is for lesbian. I'm not sure if you know, but Geraldine got engaged to a woman at this time last year. Mm. D is for Daddy Longlegs. I'm a lesbian. D is for Daddy Longlegs. I hope you don't encounter any on your birthday. Thanks. I is for Inverloch, where I believed for you would be you were going to be spending your birthday dinner tonight having a parmigiana, and as it turns out, the Inverloch pub is closed. Yeah, no, well... We we're going to go um, out for Japanese, but the Japanese restaurant oh. won't be open tonight. So mm-hmm. save it for tomorrow night, no problem. Envelope coming tomorrow. N is for neat, the way you like to drink your whiskey. Yes. E is for Elliot, is in Missy, who I'm not sure if you've heard, but Geraldine encountered uh, once when she worked at Galactic Circus. She has a great story about it. <laughs> I do. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> she came. I was running a ride, and uh, she wanted to go on the ride. <laughs> And uh, I made a laugh. It was great. Um, uh, I um, one of the best presents I ever got was the year that um, I got a, a new bike, and it was an Apollo. I think it was an Apollo 
something. My first ever bike was also an Apollo. Do you know the one I'm talking about though? With it had the back brake and also had a front front brake and it had like yes. a, a stand on the back. So like a um so it lifted up the back wheel so you oh. could like yeah so you could like it became like an exercise bike if you were on the stand but if you pedaled fast enough the stand would kick out and then you'd um go into the garage door no yeah, that might have just been me okay. um <laughs> But I loved this bike so much. And I had friends that lived down the street both had one. Um, and Vicky had a white one and, uh, and I think it was Amy had a red one. And I lo- like I used to ride and I, I just loved it And because every bike that I ever had was like a hand-me-down up until then. And I remember coming out for breakfast on the morning of my birthday and there was – um, this white bike on the veranda, and my immediate thought was, "Oh no, Vicky's left her bike here," because it was exactly the same as Vicky who lived down the road. And so, Mum was all like, "No doubt, chuffed as going. This is going to be the best. She's going to walk out. She's going to see the bike, and she's going to be like, oh, my goodness, thank you so much for my bike.'" But I walked out and looked at it and just went, "Oh." <laughs> The neighbours left a bike here and mum was just like, what? And I went, well, that's Vicky. And I was just like, "That's it's yours. And I was like, oh, you know, let me wake up. I'm a bit tired. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I can't tell you. Like because there was like a um, paddock behind like a – it's all houses now, but there was just like this empty block of land um, and it had like – dirt tracks and stuff on it and we use it there was like one particular jump and all the neighborhood kids would gather around and do jumps off this ramp thing um and one day i got the biggest the big i jumped the furthest and it was just one of the greatest days because of my sick apollo bike and you had to ride it um and then there was the time that uh i'd ridden it to school i'd ride it to school every day maybe pick up a half bottle of Coke lying in the gutter on the way, um, drink that. Um, but this bike, I would, um, I, you know, because it was, I just never locked it up. I had this, like, this flimsy little chain. Remember those those chains and, you know, with the combination lock on it? Um, I just have one of those. And then, but it'd always just be wrapped around the seat of the bike, you know, that pole that the seat's on. And I just could never be bothered to, to lock it up. Um, and then one day I came out after class and my bike was gone <gasps> and I was, oh. yeah, devastated. It's terrible. Like, yeah, yeah, I was so, I was so upset. I was like, oh, like, I, A, I felt like an idiot for not locking it up. And B, was just, like, devastated that, you know, my bike was gone. And C, I had to walk home. Like, I was just like, I don't want to walk home, <laughs> you know. But I was, you know, I had to walk all the way home and was like, and then, you know, having to tell your parents. Oh, my God. You know oh, what I mean? That, um, so I walked in and, you know, mum was there. And she goes, what? you know, I just went, oh, mum, someone's stolen my bike. <laughs> And she went, what? I said, someone's stolen my bike. And she went, you mean that bike out there? And she points outside to where my bike was. 
And then she said, that'll teach you for not locking it up. Oh wow. <laughs> so, Great lesson. Mrs. Ma- Hickey, what a classic. I know. Mum had been on tuck shop duty that day and she oh, walked out after it. lunch and like saw my bike and went, I'll be riding that home. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's a bit like me, couldn't be bothered walking home. I went, oh, I'll seize this opportunity. Some <laughs> you know, badass parenting. Yeah, ride a bike home and teach my daughter a lesson. <laughs> what a lesson. How long did you lock it up for after that? Like, did you lock it up forever? A couple of days, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe just the next day. Or just I'd check when mum was on tuck shop duty and then I'd just lock it up on those days. Triple R. Yes, Babs Fancier, Hayley Inch, joins us to look at screen stuff. Hey, Hayley. Good morning. How are we all? <laughs> good, thank you. Very good. No comment. <laughs> look, it's, it's, you know, we're all, we're all doing our best, aren't we? We are. We're all, we all, we're all just trying. Yeah, <laughs> and we all find our ways to cope, evidently. We do, we do. So yes, when um when I realised very quickly that yes, we were bound for another stint of all staying inside our homes, uh, my mind was cast back to when we started the first lockdown, and me and a dear friend of mine, Leanne, we were discussing films that we could you know watch in tandem. In, in our respective homes and then discuss in, you know, in trying to keep some sense of normalcy and talking to your friends alive. And out of nowhere, Leanne goes, do you know what I've never seen? I've never seen Yentl. Oh, my God, and even I- I've seen that. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I don't think I've seen any Barbara Streisand movie <gasps> except for What's Up Doc, which is her Peter Bogdanovich screwball comedy. So all through the first lockdown, on every Friday, we sat down and we watched a Barbara Streisand movie. We went through nearly her whole filmography. There's still a couple of outliers we haven't gotten to yet. And, guys, I love Barbara Streisand (laughs) so much. I just... Barbara saved me through that whole entire period and I feel like she's a screen performer that people have either, like, forgotten about, that she Mm. did a bunch of movies or they just don't, they don't respect, like, how much of a a Titanic screen artist she actually is. Wow. Well, where do we start? Oh, my goodness, there's so much to start with. Maybe, yeah, go, go back to the first one which we watched, which was Yentl, which is quite an extraordinary premise of a film in that it follows a young Jewish woman at the turn of the 20th century in Eastern Europe who disguises herself as a man so that she can continue studying the Torah and studying Jewish law because... Um, Women weren't expected that they needed that sort of education at that time. 
And it was uh, Barbara's directorial debut. So it was the first time she directed a film. But when you know a bit about Barbara, you know that um, Barbara doesn't get involved in any project unless she can have uh, quite a bit of creative control over it. So, you know, it's the first film she directed that has her name as the directorial credit on it. But like quite a few of the films earlier in her career, she definitely had a big influence on their creation. Um, and yeah, she she's just extraordinary in terms of um, she directed things, she produced things, she would act in them, she would write the music and often perform theme songs, of course, in it. And she was just this enormous, enormous talent who never really got recognised for how talented she was and she was always kind of framed as just this big diva who wanted control over everything. It was quite... uh, Last night I watched um, Prince of Tides because that was kind of like the last real big heavy hitter of hers that I hadn't watched yet. And Googling afterwards, I discovered that, um, because the big thing about Prince of Tides was it was nominated at the Oscars in basically every category, including Best Picture, but Barbara did not get a Best Director nod. And there was actually in uh, uh, Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars that year and in his opening address he did a song and dance number uh, to the tune of um, Don't Rain on My Parade, which included the line, did this film direct itself? <laughs> which was, and I lost it. And was, and that that is the encapsulation of, of Barbara's screen career. She made these films that were largely enormously popular and she did all the work on them and very rarely got recognised and just got slapped with a, with, with a diva, you know, title, which um, I think is uh, replicable upon a lot of women's careers in Hollywood. Mm. Well, I think one example, a, a recent example of that uh, reputation was The Guilt Trip, which was uh, with Seth Rogen. Did that come up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes, we haven't quite gotten onto the really uh, the most recent stuff such as Guilt Trip and the Fockers films and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go back particularly to her musicals because she did so many musicals in, in the 60s and the 70s, things like um, Funny Girl oh, and um, Hello Dolly. Um, I'll come back to Hello Dolly because I think that might be my favourite, although it's very, very hard to pick now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, she, she did these big, beautiful, gorgeous, just films and she was so she was so talented across um comedy and drama like she's she's one of the she's got such like pitch perfect timing in just delivering lines like if you haven't seen any of her films start with what's up doc which is just that fantastic screwball comedy that she did with ryan o'neill which is just a gorgeous farce from end to end and she's hilarious but then she can also just do straight up drama like the oh my goodness the beautiful heartbreak that is the way we were we're. where where she and robert redford just have a doomed romance your girl is lovely hubble Oh, my God. And you'll just 
cry. He will just cry buckets. And she's just so, so, so beautiful and gorgeous in it. And, yeah, there's a really funny stream through all of her films which really focus on ideas of, like, women's beauty and women's worth. So many of Barbara's characters tend to start off to be appreciated more for their minds rather than than their physical looks. And um, she's also, I think, um, maybe up in the ranks of actors like Brad Pitt in terms of being an eating actor. And very few women seem to be portrayed eating on film ever, but Barbara's eating all the time in her films and talking about how much she loves food. And personally, I found that utterly delightful and I need more of that. Eating actors. That's eating actors. it's yeah. it should, it should be a category at the Oscars, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, what what were some really were there any duds? Oh yeah. Well, there's there's always a couple of duds, and yeah, we we start scratching right down to the bottom of the barrel. There's a very weird film called called Nuts that she did in the eighties. <gasps> I've seen with that Richard one too. Yeah. <laughs> it's very it's very bizarre. Barbara plays a call girl who's taken to court because she murdered a John who attacked her, and yeah, that's that's a really bizarre curio. Um, yeah, uh, I, I wasn't too big a fan of Funny Lady, which is the sequel to <laughs> Funny Girl. Um, Funny Girl is, oh, my God, spectacular. And uh, we do need to give some props to the fact that Barbara knew how to uh, pick a leading man because, you know, uh, she, she stars opposite uh, just some fabulous fellas like Robert Redford, um, Jeff Bridges, uh, Omar Sharif, my God. Um, I've never heard anyone refer to say Omar Sharif like that. And, and yes, also, if you only from you, know Mandy Patinkin from uh, Criminal Minds or, or The Princess Bride, please watch Yentl because Yentl is a really good example of uh, how women directors frame men in a very evocative mm. way. Anywho. Um, and, and, and also, I'm not sure if, how many more you want to run through here, Hayley, but I was just also the created inadvertently the Streisand effect. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't, yeah, I, I feel like because we know her for that, it kind of like keys into that thing of like, oh, Barbara Streisand's just a big joke. That's the diva stuff. Yeah, right. diva stuff. But then you actually, when you actually immerse yourself in the work, you're just like, this is extraordinary. This is like just this this entertainer who who I don't know. She she certainly doesn't really have any peers within her own generations, really. Mm. And I kind of feel like maybe there's only like a, maybe a few younger artists who kind of stretch that thing of you know singer. Uh, performer, actor, but like just just the range she's got goes incredible. Um, but before we wrap up, I really do want to come back to Hello Dolly because that was just like one of the most amazing musical experiences I've ever had. It's it, it, it's directed by Gene Kelly, and um, Barbara takes on the lead role of you know fixer and matchmaker Dolly Levi, and there's a scene 
in the second half of the film where Dolly returns to her favourite restaurant that she hadn't been to since her husband had passed away. And it's this big moment, it's the big stonking dance number where, like, they just throw out all the stops and it's just entertainment and spectacle. And she arrives at the restaurant and all of the staff swarm her and they're like, hello, Dolly, it's so great to have you back where you belong. And when I saw this for the first time, I broke down. I just started weeping because I was like, this is what I want for us all at yeah. the end of this. Mm. I want a time where we can walk into the places that we loved and we're embraced in that this is where we should have been all along and because of circumstances we haven't. We should have dancing waiters. We should have sing songs. We should have Louis Armstrong coming out and, and, and serenading us. <laughs> and we thought that we had that time but it was not to be, so we must <laughs> go back inside and we must we must recourse to Barbara. Barbara Rou- will save us all. Rousing stuff, Hayley. Um, well, it is an emotional time. And, uh, it is an emotional time. <laughs> a Barbara Streisand retrospective. Uh, good on you. I look forward to what you, uh, what you look at next. Oh, who bloody knows, guys? Probably just more Barbara and Mad Men. Triple R. For Rondry couple Sarah and Kurt Hartis, there's scarcely a dull moment in their Ipswich household. The busy parents, their 11 children and two grandkids are the focus of the new documentary My Family Matters, screening on NITV as part of Carla Grant Presents. And on the line to tell us about the hectic Hartis home is Dean Gibson, award-winning filmmaker who saw all the family action up close. Dean, welcome to Breakfasts. Oh, good morning to you all. I hope you're all well. We are. Yes, thank um, you. How, uh, how did you come to settle on the Hardest Family as the subject of My Family Matters? Well, it, it, I guess originally NITV, and we've got a good, I've got a good working relationship with NITV, and they sort of approached me and said, I think it's time to, we want to start looking at what contemporary Aboriginal families look like. Let's start to have a conversation about that. Let's let's look at cliches. Let's look at role modelling. Let's, let's put everything on the table and begin to look at what, what does a contemporary family look like, and 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 what what do we sort of lean in on, lean in, lean in on around that? Um, we're up here in Queensland, and we we we're a little bit parochial. These Queenslanders, I don't know, it's a bit silly sometimes. But we we really want to look at a Queensland family. We want to look at a local Brisbane family, and we put the call out around um, the black grapevine around Brisbane, and and we came across the hardest family, and they're you know. I think what we wanted to really do is identify something that was really different, really unique and really special. And I think we sort of slightly accidentally stumbled across them and realised, hey, there's something in these, this family and, and what the story they had to tell. Mm, well, take us through a typical morning in the hardest household. <laughs> well, I've got a couple of kids and I <laughs> find that pretty crazy. Um, they've got 11 kids under their roof. A standard home, uh, nothing special, nothing, there's no... You know, there's no support staff or whatever. It's just a family, uh, 11 kids, and you know what? It was surprisingly calm. I, I, I The first day we filmed, I almost I walked away confused, thinking I was not expecting that. I was expecting mayhem and chaos and yelling and screaming and, and all that sort of what you'd sort of come to assume. But they were actually calm. They were quite relaxed. And I don't know if that was the camera, but it was about getting people up, getting people ready, 
getting uh, ready for school, checking in on everyone, and then pretty much sending them all there in one big uh, pathway out the door yeah. to catch the school bus. Yeah, and four different schools? Four different schools, yeah. And, and that's interesting in itself where they – I think, you know, it's what I love about that idea of four different schools is they realise that their kids aren't all the same. They're not one just – it's not one mould. They recognise that they're all very different. They've got their very different skills. They're very different types of personalities. And they really want to complement them to certain schools to really match that. So I thought that was really, really quite, quite, really quite nice to see. And I, I know it's trivial, but two mm. loaves of bread per morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rice bubbles, bread, milk. I mean, we did a cost with, we went to a big um, shopping with them. And it's, of course, you can't do like a standard little IGA thing or whatever. It's like, it's the Costco thing where you've got the massive supplies where it's all everything in bulk. So it was quite funny to sort of go through an ep- a little um, a shoot moment with them where they were actually just loading up trolleys with stuff and yeah, they. But you know, it's just it's just getting through. It's doing it as best as they can, and and I think what really stood through was their contentment for what they have and not really wishing for more or not feeling like they were missing out. They, they felt really strong in their family unit and strong about themselves. And I think that was probably the real shining light in the story. Mm. What, what about some of the challenges in a household and, and particular to the family? Yeah, the, the obvious, the big one is that the, the youngest boy, he's um, Milica, he's got Edwards syndrome. So that's, it's quite a challenge for, the parents, but also um, I think it's challenge, but it's also they see it as an opportunity to really lean in on him and really get around him. And I, it's amazing because he has his moments where he's, he's a young he's a young boy, he's like seven, seven or eight, and he it's a tough and he breaks down and he struggles. But you can see that it's not just uh, mum and dad's job to get around him. Mm. siblings get around him they all like everyone's reaching out to him and making sure that the, the focus is very much around Milica which is really quite fascinating in terms of dynamics but you can see it's really sweet it's actually directed in the right way in the right manner it's really about giving him quality of life because Edward syndromes doesn't have a, a, a large lifespan so it's about quality with him right there and now there's a really beautiful moment um, when in the morning when everybody's getting ready for school mm-hmm. and Milica has a, you know, a bit of a tanty over something and it's yeah. like you, you can't work out what it is. But the patience from mum, mm-hmm. Sarah, yeah. who just goes, what do you want? And then he's pointing at something and mm-hmm. I, I thought he was just pointing out the window and then she's like straight away works out that he wants his hair brushed. Like she'd been braiding her daughter's mm-hmm. hair and he's mm-hmm. like, I want to get in on that. And it was just mm-hmm. a really beautiful moment where you see um, what a great patient and, and, and yeah, and like you said, the whole family getting together and, and rallying around him. And it's just, yeah, it was a really beautiful moment. It was, wasn't it? And even just that, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I don't know if the word normalises right, but just... Just to mm. accept that that's 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 who he is, and that's not a challenge. Like that's not seen as something that's beyond just what we're going to do. And and they embraced they embrace him through all the different aspects of their life. And they don't. It's not like he misses out because of because of uh, having a syndrome. It's not. No, it's 
he's part of every component and it might take a little bit more effort it might take a little bit more of a um, challenge or but it, you can see that what comes on the back end of all that is worth it and more more broadly looking at uh, the work you do can you tell us about uh, your production company bacon factory films yeah um, it's an aboriginal based production company up here in brisbane um i do a lot of documentaries for nitv done some, uh, some stuff for abc kids and, and just really get them like i think for me i don't want to be sort of pigeonholed as just doing exclusive aboriginal content but it's it's a really great opportunity to tell that story um it's a great opportunity to sort of like this get get a, a, an insight into a family home or into a into a world where people may not know, they might not know how to approach, they might feel like in the, oh, what's politically correct, how do I ask this? You know, trying to create content that opens up um, people's lives and opens up windows to see people so they can look in and go, hey, maybe these guys aren't like what I thought they were and that's okay and uh, maybe they're different and that's okay and start to sort of open up the pathway of communication and understanding around appreciation respect that obviously we are different and that's not something to be frightened of mm. and are you you teeing up the next bluey <laughs> i'd love to no all right i'd love to have bluey. no well I, you, you know the, the big thing next for me is um, i'm just on the it's about um i'm doing a big feature documentary about aboriginal incarceration so this these this current big movement of the, of the black lives matter and the incarceration mm. rates and and deaths in custody um so that's my sort of next big project but yeah you know i'd love to <laughs> i need some light and shade so bluey the next yeah. bluey could maybe blacky or something i don't know <laughs> well uh in the meantime the documentary my family matters featuring the hardest family screens on nitv monday 13th of july at 8 30 p.m and we've been speaking to writer director filmmaker dan gibson thanks heaps dean thank you very much have a great day Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Shorty, recently you got your Masters. I haven't got it yet. I submitted. Well, you submitted it. Yeah. And what have you got your Masters in? It's technically called a Masters of Teaching Practice, parentheses, secondary. That's great. Can you do me one favour? And move your computer yeah. so I can see your face. <laughs> Thank you. It's so weird talking to a shoulder. Sorry. I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. Um, say it again, what you got? I got a master's in teaching practice in parentheses, secondary. So the high school teacher. Okay. Master's in. All right. So I thought it might be um, fun to test you. On, yeah. Um. Whether you see if you really are a master, <laughs> uh, maybe give you a couple of um, uh, scenarios. Sure. Yep. Um, that may or may not happen in the real world. Yep. And um, we'll see how you go. See if you really are a master. All right. Mm. I'm ready. I think she's a master already. Because uh, parentheses, it's a, it's a hard word to say. <laughs> B. They're, they're sort of just fancy brackets, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so I have to admit that the my use of the word parentheses does not come from my master's degree, but yet from watching too many um, Bon Appetit videos on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's very American. Uh, all right. So um, let's kick off. Um, so 
what have I got for you first? Oh, okay, here. So um, there's a, a, a – you notice the crowd is gathered around, uh, a child in the playground. Yes. And you go over to investigate and discover they have a small bird in their lunchbox that they claim they rescued from the sand pit. What do you do? Um, <laughs> I would disperse. Feel free to ask any questions. Can I phone a friend? Um, I would disperse the crowd. How stressful for this tiny bird. What kind of bird is it? Is it a pest bird or a protective species? It's a, it's a yellow canary. That's somebody's pet. Could be. Um, well, I guess I would bring the student with their lunch blocks and the small bird into the into inside. Okay, well, let's take a step back. <laughs> Disperse the crowd. Yeah. How does what does that sound like? Can everyone please go and find something else to do? Nah, I want to <laughs> see the bird miss. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you don't just get to do whatever you Look want. Look at the bird miss. Look. <laughs> Jono's got a bird. Jono has a bird and we're going to go and find the bird. What are you going to do with the bird, miss? We're going to kill the bird. We're not going to kill the bird. We're going to find out where the bird goes. (laughs) It might be somebody's beloved pet. You listen to Triple R, miss. The bird man, he'd know what to do with the bird. Sean Sean would know. Um, And unfortunately, I don't have his personal number, so I'm not going to call him right now. Um, But... Have no. you been on the radio, Miss? I have been on the radio, yes. Oh. Yeah, on Triple R sometimes. Just got a new show, actually. But, is that right? Yeah, it's on past your bedtime, though. You can't come. You can't listen. Look at the bed. Oh, that's a pretty good. Um, I don't know if you really did much to, to disperse the crowd. <laughs> it sort of made me more interested. <laughs> I was, when when you said that you were going to give me some scenarios, I was like, oh, I'm all over this. I've done this in my degree, but nothing about a bird. There you go. That was based on um, a real-life situation where I found a canary in a sand pit when I was working in after-school care. And um, I ended up taking it home, and uh, but it died of shock the next day. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Rest in peace. But anyway. Uh, Okay, here's another one. Uh, You notice a child with a cotton bud up his nose. Oh, good. And discover another student is playing a make-believe game where they are a doctor doing (laughs) COVID-19. Talk us through that one. Well, I had a COVID test last week, so I'm very against this. Very, very against this game. But also, um, I would. Is that re- you're going to tell the student? <laughs> I do you know what I would do? I would say, I would firstly ask them to safely remove the um, the cotton bud, and then I would tell them exactly how unpleasant a COVID test really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also, being a high school teacher, hope that there are no children that think that that game is suitable at that age. Yeah, I was really thinking of primary school. It's <laughs> I'm badly underqualified because I'd be like, make sure you get right up in there. It's not, it won't work unless you tickle the brain. Oh, oh God. It really does. It really, it's a tickle's not the word I'd use, but whew. no. Do you know what? I'm going to give you um, bonus points on that one for um, 
getting the cotton bud out first. A lot of people wouldn't think of that. They'd go straight to the to the person that was putting them up there. And um, it's really a good first aid response. I just got know. my first aid last week. Oh, okay then. Here yeah, we go. Some <clears throat> fresh. I've added a new one. Okay. Uh a kid, uh, the same child that you pulled the um, cotton bud out of their nose now has a blood nose. <laughs> Give us your oh, first one. All right. I know this one. Um, sitting up, ice pack on the back of the neck, get them to lean forward slightly and you pinch the bridge of their nose or get them to hold the bridge of their nose just gently um, until the bleeding stops. And if the bleeding doesn't stop... You do need to think about um, the start of your doctor's ABCD, <laughs> um, which I... And what do they stand for? Doctor's ABCD, Ooh, danger, response, send for help, airway, breathing, um, CPR, defibrillator. Is that how you say that word? Defibrillator? Get the pads out. Yeah. Uh, all right. What about, what about sorry, because yeah. I'm new, what are you? what are you supposed to do? Oh, is that that's exactly what you're supposed to do? Well, for a blood nose, blood yes. Nose. I mean, a blood nose right. would hopefully not okay. result I, in needing CPR. Grab them by the ankles, hang them upside down, and <laughs> you know, use gravity. Um, haven't you recently had a child? <laughs> yeah, look, there's lots to learn. I'm not, I'm not denying it. It's a steep curve. God, Thankfully, I hope someone in your family's first aid yeah. trained. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, one more. Um, uh, there was there's a student um, that um, wants to bring in their show and tell. They're outside, and they want to bring their show and tell in, uh, but their show and tell is a horse. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> they brought in their horse from home. It's outside the classroom. They have want I, to get it in. Have I have I relocated back to Tawonga or? <laughs> um, no, we're in this. When I was growing up, we did have children who would bring their their um, family pets in for show and tell. Um, a horse is probably too big to be inside, but perhaps if we wanted to organise an excursion for the class to go out to, um, what is that? Oh, there's a horse. There's what is it called? In where, no, no, no. There's a, a an organisation like a business where an I'm, adjustment. No, where I no. where my parents live in in Tawonga South, and it's and it's like a horse riding, but like there's a, this big farm with lots of horses and, um, yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, up into and we went on an excursion there to see horses for I mean not for show and tell, but that's a great story, Miss. But I'd really like to <laughs> <laughs> the excursions come to us, Miss. Yeah, I'm sorry, we cannot. <laughs> For, for I've got it on a lead. Health and safety, <laughs> we cannot. We just can't have a horse in the school. I'm so sorry. Why not, Miss? Because I've got it here. It's OHS. I'll hold on to it. She's rich. She's a nice horse. No, no. she'll fit in here. No. Everybody will, can have a close look. If it poos, I'll pick it up. It's not about the poo. <laughs> it's about the cruelty to the animal for a start off. Mm. And uh, no, no, no horses at the school. Thank you very much. Get your dad to take it home. I'm taking the day off to take her home. All right, that's fine. You'll get a detention. What? Well. <laughs> what? what for? For not thinking this through. You're, you're not thinking it through. Oh, what do I get detention for? For <laughs> Well, for fighting me for one. <laughs> 
I, I'm not – you're making me feel underprepared to be a teacher, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit scared about what's coming up. Melbourne's own. Triple R. According to a survey published in the Medical Journal of Australia, Australia has seen a doubling of mental health issues in the wake of the pandemic. And Beyond Blue this morning reports anxiety and distress spiking among the 5 million Melbournians plunged back into lockdown. Here to lend his expertise and mental health advice as we embark on a second round of stage three restrictions is Steve Ellen, aka Doolittle from Radiotherapy and co host of the Triple R podcast, Shrink the Virus. Steve, welcome back to Breakfasters. G'day, Breakfasters. Hello. Uh, uh, what what were your takeaways on the ground from the first lockdown and how might this time around be different? You know, the first one, I reckon um, this one's a little bit different. So first time around, I reckon we spent a, like probably the first two or three weeks, four weeks, just getting our head around what the hell coronavirus was, what the implications were, all that sort of stuff. And pretty quickly, a sort of sense of community spirit started emerging. People started sharing all sorts of happy memes, ideas for isolation, silver linings, all that sort of bizzo. And, um, you know, and, and most people, I think, took it super, super seriously. That was the other, I, I think, big difference. Now, this time around, the thing that I've really noticed is a lot of people are super pissed off early on. A lot of people have got that sense that, what the hell? How did we get there? Whose fault is it? What's going on? And I reckon it's going to take us a little bit longer to flip out of the negativity and start, you know, getting that sort of sense of, okay, how are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? How do we have to, you know, uh, support each other? That sort of business. I reckon it's going to be a little slower this time. Yeah. Uh, What how how does that manifest itself? I mean, the Beyond Blue calls, as as we said in the news, have ticked up. I mean, is it is it how big is this problem? I reckon it is pretty huge. Now, first time around, we saw a drop in calls to mental health services across the board in Australia, certainly in Victoria, like 15 to 25% down, basically, our calls and people turning up to our services. And we were 90% sure, we were really sure at the time that this was because people were, you know, keeping to themselves, hiding away, and they didn't know how to contact services. And as we came out of that, we really saw services start to peaking at peak. Our waiting list blew out at my hospital, Peter Mac, and at other hospitals too. So we started to really see the anxiety and the stress coming through. And we did a lot of work. You will have seen, you know, every mental health service was doing a lot of media, basically saying, hey, everyone, contact us. You know, the doors are open. We can do this safely. We've got online, telehealth, telephone. You don't have to come in if you're freaked out. And if you do come in, we can manage it with temperature checks and masks and all that sort of business. And, uh, and I reckon this time, I'm hoping people People take it, the mental, you know, get onto the mental health a little bit quicker. I think Beyond Blue is spot on. Um, we're all seeing, you know, lots of extra work and we're all ready for it. You know, the big beauty of the first time around, you'll remember, you know, a lot of the shutdown early was to get us ready. So, we, you know, we shut down so we could prepare hospitals, get ICU beds ready, get public health operating, get a lot of um, protective equipment into Australia like masks and other PPE. And um, so, you know, essentially we're ready this time. All the services are ready to go. And the message is, you know, call us if you've got problems. Mm. So, uh, yeah, go, go no. ahead. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, hey, I just saw that in. cough into your elbow. 10 out of 10. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, um, infectious disease controls to Geraldine. Thank you. It's because it's many years of working with children. Just habit now. Uh, I When this second lockdown, um, you know, was announced, I wrote down um, three tips um, this is mostly for me, but for for everybody. Um, and I want to. I want your advice on it. 
um, and obviously add to it and take it away. Um, but I've got my uh, three tips of number one, give yourself permission to cry. Um, number two, set a routine. And number three, 7 p.m. is a perfectly reasonable bedtime. Yeah. Oh, look, I, you know, the thing I love about that is that you've written down your tips because one of the things that we really notice from this is different people react different ways. <clears throat> Excuse me, coughing now. You know, we all have different ways of getting it. Some people love the lockdown. You know, people who are, you know, like maybe a little bit introverted or, you know, just, you know, like the peace and quiet of your own space and getting a break from the uh, rat race. Some of them like it, but not everyone. You're extroverts, people who are very social, people who really um, get, a, you know, buzz out of the community they find it a lot tougher and so the first thing you have to do is pretty much take a you know a temperature check on your mental health you know how are you going and figure out what helped you in the first time round and what didn't so you learn from that you know so you're going to bed 7 p.m spot on if that's the thing for you because you have to get up at the crack of dawn of course um but everyone should you know look sit down and think how am i going am i sleeping okay you know am i concentrating am i crying much you know how am i feeling and sort of get us and then move that on to what can i do to you know improve my situation even if you just get a pen and paper out and figure out you know what were the things you loved last time you know was it for you that time to think was it for you doing something different heaps of people you know whatever it was you know they made sourdough or they um you know they started doing different things you've got to think what it is and then on top of that you've got to figure out how you're going to keep some of your usual activities going you know stuff like your structure and your connections and how you're going to make that work whether it's online or whatever Mm. It's, I mean, so there are thousands of businesses that are going to face closure, uh, not to mention the actual physical isolation uh, and the broad health impacts. You know, is it is it actually possible to think your way into positivity when you actually are just getting slammed? It is for some people. So some people really respond to that sort of stuff and they do things like gratitude diaries and, um, and you know, the stuff that brings them up. But for not, but not everyone's like that. Um, the, there's basically, though, you know, five things, you know, I sometimes call mental health boot camp or psychological first aid that work for everyone. And that's getting enough sleep, getting correct nutrition, exercising, paying attention to relationships and stress. Now, everyone can do that no matter what. And, they're, and you know, look, they've all got a hot, you know, each of those five things has a whole book written about them, basically. Mm-hmm. But you can Google them and figure out if your sleep's not working, Google better sleep, you know, those sorts of stuff. But if you're a person who gets off on the positivity and lots of people are, then great, go for it. But if you're not, then just blow it out the window because it's horses for courses. We all respond differently to different situations and you've got to personalise it to your own circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and what what would you be be your advice to someone who's living with someone who it's affecting? Is there a is there a delicate way to help affect change? Oh, uh, so in terms of trying to help someone else other than yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I guess look, my first thing that I say on that is often use that, um, you know, again, it's a little bit trite, but that silly analogy about, you know, when the oxygen masks fall from the plane, put yours on before you put someone else's on. So you've got to get your own mental health right first before you've got the psychological energy to help someone else. But if you're in that point where you want to help someone else, number one is communication. Don't assume that um, what you see is what's going on in their head. So, and which we all do, it's a natural tendency. So first thing, stop, take a breath and ask them, how are you going? And then ask the most obvious question of the lot. 
is there anything I can do to help you? And then shut up and listen. Because, you know, our natural tendency is not to. It's to throw our ideas onto you. So Mm. the biggest tip for that is to listen to them and find out how you can help. They might say nothing. They might say, look, I don't want you to help. Or they might not be in the space when you ask them. So you wait. They might talk about it the next day. But then when they do, you know, they'll if they do ask for advice, stick to the basics and then just help help them work out what's best for them, basically, is, is my main message. That's essentially what a shrink does as distinct from a friend. A friend listens and tries to tell you what that, you know, what's helped them. A, you know, a, a trained person listens, doesn't throw their, um, their preconceived ideas onto the situation, but helps the person work through it and find their own solutions. And that's what we all should do when we're worried about someone near us. Yeah. Speaking of shrinks, your podcast, Shrink the Virus, can, you've got many episodes up. Can you walk us through some of the highlights? And if, if we go back and uh, catch it on our podcatcher, what, you know, what, what you've been covering? So Shrink the Virus is uh, myself and my mate Rob Seltzer, who's uh, malpractice on um, on radiotherapy. You know, we decided to do this early on just to, you know, really talk to a whole lot of people and try to build up a little bit of a library of different experts who you might want to listen to. So you can whiz back and you might want to listen to the school teacher talking about how to do home education for kids and the, and tips for that. Or you might want to hear some of the experts like we had, you know, paediatric infectious diseases, adult infectious diseases. We talked to an ethicist at one stage, which was really interesting about, you know, some of the ethical challenges we all faced. We talk, spoke to a few media people, people like Catherine Devaney and Nellie Thomas, you know, with, you know, their sorts of tips. There's lots of stuff you can, you know, go back and have a bit of a look on. And then also the other thing I've loved doing about it is for us, it's been a bit of a diary because, you know, each week we also chat about what's going on that week. And Mm. we sort of, we're in a little bit of a groundhog day. So some of those things we're refacing now, you know, you know, the shock and that we're all going through trying to get our head around this, plus our fear, our anxiety and how we deal with it. So it's a real mixed bag. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for bringing it up, though. <laughs> no worries. Maybe some more people will listen. Uh, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14, and uh, Beyond Blue is 1 322 uh, Steve's top three mental health tips are up on the Triple R website right now. And uh, you can catch Steve, aka Doolittle, uh, on the Shrink the Virus podcast, and also Sundays, 10 to 11 a.m., on Radiotherapy on Triple R. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks for having me on and thanks for all the, you know, good work you guys are doing too. I think, you know, if all of us just keep a bit positive and all that sort of stuff, it will be easier. Thanks, man. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. 